The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and as your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we continue our mid-winter sermon series on God and war. In this series, we are exploring resources within the Christian tradition that can help us interpret and respond to acts of state-sponsored violence, violence initiated by our own country, and violent acts carried out by other states, organizations, or shadowy groups. As a reminder, next Sunday, we have organized a panel of Fifth Avenue members, those who have served in the military and those who have worked on peace initiatives throughout the world to prime the pump for additional conversation. So next Sunday at 1230, right after this worship service, next Sunday, bring your appetite for good food and good conversation as Dr. Charlene Hahn-Powell moderates an all-church forum on war and peace. Put it on your calendar. As we've engaged this topic together, many of you have noted in conversation with me that our broad questions about violence and faith quickly evoke more questions. Questions about faith and violence are sort of like a set of Russian dolls. Every time you open one line of inquiry, you find another complicated question nested inside. Last Sunday, we opened one of those dolls. We asked, what does God think about violence? And to answer, we looked at two threads in Christian tradition. And in case you weren't there, a quick summary of those two threads. Thread number one goes like this. God is an emancipating warrior. This image occurs in both the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. God, the holy warrior, frees people from bondage and fights against the powers of evil. God is willing to draw a sword against those who would do violence to the downtrodden. Thread number two provides a critique or a caution to thread number one, and really a critique of all other arguments that link God and violence in scripture. In thread number two, we find God grieving people's violent ways. In the writings of the prophet Hosea, God actually swears off using violence to bring people back in line. This God, my friend Walter Brueggemann argues, is in recovery 
from violence. With those two threads in mind, last week, we then took a look at America's bloodiest war, the Civil War. And in doing that, we opened another doll. We asked the thorny ethical question, are people of faith justified in using force to end a horrific practice like slavery? Finally, I put forward the position, my perspective, that we need both thread number one and thread number two as we seek to interpret acts of violence in the world, as we weigh our responses. This, I argued, is the balancing act of faith. Today, this morning, I want to continue our conversation uh, by examining these same two threads in the work of two American theologians. We're going to be accompanied on this journey by two passages from the good book. And the first comes from Joshua, chapter 5, beginning with the 13th verse. Listen now for God's word to you. Once, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? The man replied, Neither. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What do you command your servant, my lord? The commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And a second reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning with the sixth verse. Then David called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had planned to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood in my sight on the earth. See, a son shall be born to you. He shall be a man of peace. I will give him peace from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be a son to me, and I will be a father to him, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In studying Christian perspectives on violence, I think there are two American theologians that we simply must consider. 
that if we're going to engage in a conversation about this, you need these two people and their thought in your heads. So my goal this morning is ultimately not to convince you that one of these thinkers is right and that the other is wrong, although I'm going to tell you what I think. My goal is to lay out their highly regarded arguments as we seek together to build our perspectives on violence and faith. The first voice I think we must consider when thinking about faith and violence belongs to Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was born in 1892 in Wright City, Missouri. The son of German immigrants and the child of a pastor, Niebuhr too felt a call to ministry at a relatively young age. Later, he attended Eden Theological Seminary and eventually Yale Divinity School. In 1915, 1915, having graduated from seminary, Niebuhr was ordained a pastor and began to serve a German immigrant congregation in Detroit, Michigan. In the early 1900s, Detroit was the fourth largest city in this country, a melting pot of black and white migrants from the rural south, as well as Jewish and Catholic immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. When Niebuhr arrived in Detroit, though, the melting pot was threatening to boil over. Competition for jobs and housing in Detroit led to the rise of tensions between various ethnic groups. And the Ku Klux Klan, sensing a fertile ground for their message of hate, was trying to become a political force in the city. In this precarious moment, and with some pretty nasty enemies, Niebuhr became known as a fierce advocate for racial reconciliation and bridge building. He was singled out by African-American pastors in Detroit for numerous honors in this regard. Niebuhr was also a strong early supporter of unions. His somewhat socialist economic leanings and his tours of Detroit's economic or Detroit's factories led Niebuhr to offer public criticisms of industrialist and automaker Henry Ford. And these opinions and activities got Niebuhr put on an FBI watch list for the rest of his life. In the midst of Niebuhr's ministry in Detroit, and this is the part of Niebuhr's thought that I want us to focus on, World War I broke out. Niebuhr and his congregation of German immigrants faced questions there in that city about their patriotism. Whose side are you on? To respond, Niebuhr embraced America wholeheartedly. He spoke about a flag big enough to envelop people from all sorts of different backgrounds. But at the same time, he was publicly critical of the war. Niebuhr described the Great War, the war to end all wars, as a futile struggle between two massive alliances. It was, he argued, a conflict urged on the world by politicians who sat in state houses 
far from the front lines. No one who had experienced the carnage of the trenches, Niebuhr argued after returning from a visit to France, no one could justify this conflict. In the aftermath of World War I's horrific battles, over 16 million civilians and combatants were lost in World War I. Niebuhr observed, when the war began, I was an optimist. When it ended, I had very nearly become a cynic. And so the good pastor declared himself a pacifist. To suggest that God would want anyone to participate in such pointless carnage, Niebuhr concluded, was utterly absurd. I am done, Niebuhr wrote in his journal, with the war business. Niebuhr was honest, but he was wrong. He wasn't done with the war business, nor was the world, not hardly. And in the next conflict, Niebuhr would become the fiercest critic of the very pacifism that he first embraced. What brought about such a radical change of heart? In 1928, Niebuhr left Detroit to become professor of practical theology at Union Seminary here in New York City, Pastor Dunn's alma mater. And it was in New York that Niebuhr began to speak out against the rise of national socialism in the country his parents had immigrated from. On the faculty of Union Seminary, Niebuhr became fast friends with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor who would eventually be hanged in Germany for his involvement in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. It was Niebuhr's conversations with Bonhoeffer and with another friend, Jewish scholar and rabbi Abraham Heschel, that changed his mind about pacifism. Together, with great trepidation and concern, they watched the rise of Hitler's Third Reich and they began to ask this question. What response will the faithful give to an evil bent on controlling the world, a malevolent power that seeks through violence to eliminate all opposition and all who are deemed inferior? In the face of such a power, Niebuhr argued, people of faith must resist. In an about-faced on his pacifist days, Niebuhr argued for a theology grounded in realism. If people of faith want justice in this messy world, they are going to have to get their hands dirty. They're going to have to get involved in politics and marches. If you want justice, Niebuhr said, you had better be ready to wield power, sometimes even violent power. Now, to be clear, Niebuhr did not embrace the use of violence lightly. It was absolutely to be as a last resort. We could not forget, Niebuhr would say, that God calls us 
first and foremost, to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers, to, to resort to violence, we must remember is to plunge into the world of sin. Those who embrace violence can harbor no naivete, they will be tainted by it. Goodness armed with power, Niebuhr argued, is corrupted. Goodness armed with power is corrupted. But he did not stop there. Pure love without power is destroyed. And this is the bind in which we live. Here, Niebuhr turned his critical eye on Americans who declared themselves pacifists at a safe distance from the advance of Nazism in Europe. They too, Niebuhr argued, are committing a sin by turning away from a direct confrontation with evil. In a famous essay, Niebuhr observed that the presence of more pacifists in the world would not have stopped Hitler from invading Poland. Tanks would have stopped Hitler from invading Poland. Sometimes, Niebuhr argued, when it comes to protecting innocence from destruction and death, the only answer is to embrace the dirty compromise of violence. How can we, as Christians, know when we've come to one of those fateful moments? In a way, the answer to this question is embedded in Niebuhr's most famous prayer a prayer that found its way into countless military prayer books during World War II and eventually into the handbook of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm speaking, of course, about the famous serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. We must seek wisdom from God to know when we should act with courage and when we should stand down. And Niebuhr sought to employ such wisdom throughout the rest of his life. While he was a vocal supporter of the Allied fight against the Axis powers in World War II, Niebuhr was highly critical, together with his good friend Martin Luther King Jr., of the war in Vietnam. It was possible, Niebuhr believed, to discern in human conflict when the stakes require Christian involvement and commitment and when Christians should step back and voice criticism of the state for getting involved in a conflict. It was possible to discern when violence was justified and when it was not. On March 8th, 1948, Reinhold Niebuhr was featured on the cover of Time magazine, a publication which would describe him in, inside as America's theologian. 53 years later, and not even two weeks after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C., our second figure this morning, Stanley Hauerwas, was also featured in Time magazine and was described 
as America's best theologian. Now, there's deep irony here for a number of reasons. First, as Hauerwas immediately quipped, best is not a Christian category. Second, Hauerwas made his entire career, really, he made his career out of criticizing Time's other beloved theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. And third, even as America was about to begin what some describe as the never-ending war on terrorism, Time was lifting up one of America's most passionate pacifists. Born in Dallas, Texas in 1940, Stanley Hauerwas was raised as a Methodist. He earned a Bachelor of Divinity degree and later a PhD from Yale University. Hauerwas went on to teach as professor of ethics at Notre Dame and eventually to Duke University where he spent the bulk of his career. He retired from full-time teaching at Duke in 2013 but continues to opine on ethics and Christianity in print and in many video televised presentations. Throughout his career, Stanley Hauerwas offered, has offered a rigorous criticism of Niebuhr's perspectives on justice and violence. His criticism goes like this. The goal of the Christian life is not to make the world more just. The goal of the Christian life is to be shaped by the Christian story, to be disciples to be the church of Jesus Christ. Being shaped by the Christian story means fully embracing Christ's teachings and Christ's way of life. In, in making this argument, Hauerwas points to the Sermon on the Mount and to other passages in Scripture where Jesus calls on his followers to embody an ethic that is totally at odds with the Roman world in which they live. You have heard that it, is, it was said, Jesus preaches in, in Matthew chapter 5, you've, you've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Later in that same chapter, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There is something quite radical, something that should not be tamed or watered down, Hauerwas argues, at the heart of Christianity. And as such, when Niebuhr and others suggest that we've got to get our hands dirty, they are giving away the radical heart of what it means to be Christian. We are meant to live odd, out-of-sync lives in this messy and violent world. Our lives exist as a sign, as a reminder of the story of Jesus. If we're to take Jesus seriously, 
We must not conform to contemporary culture. We must be nonviolent no matter the cost. This is the only way, says Hauerwas, to model the truth of Jesus. About 20 years ago, in December, I attended a lecture that Stanley Hauerwas gave at Duke University. He was speaking to a number of seminary professors, as I was at the time, and as is so often the case, he was furiously telling us that we were all a bunch of sellouts. It was classic Stanley, a harangue full of frustration over what he perceived to be our cultural accommodations. And as he railed at us in this fancy room somewhere at the Duke House, certain that we'd all sold our souls to a violent consumerist world, a Christmas tree standing alone in the corner of the room inexplicably fell over with a crash. Without missing a beat, Hauerwas raised an eyebrow and grumbled, well, at least the Holy Spirit believes me. <laughs> Throughout his teaching career, Hauerwas has argued that Niebuhr's approach, permitting violence in certain cases, eventually results in Christians kowtowing to the wider culture. In other words, those willing to get their hands dirty in pursuit of justice usually end up delivering more dirt than justice. As evidence, Hauerwas points to religious leaders who cozy up to politicians and who then use their platforms, their pulpits, to defend these politicians, shielding them even when their actions and words fly utterly in the face of the teachings of Jesus Christ. This sort of accommodation, Hauerwas argues, is the natural outgrowth of the Niburian position. Power corrupts. At the end of the day, Hauerwas argues that the cure for all this is a more robust understanding of church. Specifically, Hauerwas believes that we need to take seriously Christ's call for the church to be an alternative community. Whenever Christians gather, we ought to be shaped by a story that has at its center a figure who was tortured and killed by the state. A story in which God has been subject to the worst violence the world can dish out, and yet a story that trusts that somehow God will prevail over that violence without raising a sword, redeeming the world that God loves and all of us along with it. Our actions as church must be shaped by this story, says Hauerwas, or else we are not church at all. Making an appeal to our complicated tradition, and it is complicated and with deep passion, both Stanley Harwas and Reinhold Niebuhr lay out their perspectives on how we, as people of faith, ought to approach violence.
Neither of these two figures is eager to embrace violence. Both are critical of certain applications of violence. For example, both Niebuhr and Hauerwas were and are highly critical of the U.S. decision to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands, mostly civilians, at the close of World War II. And yet, Niebuhr and Hauerwas stand on opposite sides of a fierce divide. Is violence, however repulsive, sometimes the only faithful response for a person seeking to be one of God's children in this messy world? Or is violence never a viable response for those who have committed to following the way of Jesus Christ? Where do you stand? Personally, I think I come down on Niebuhr's side of this debate but I offer that remark with a few caveats. First, I've never found myself in a situation where I've needed to use violence to protect innocence. I believe, if I concluded that violence was my only option, that I would be capable of it. But I honestly wonder, and I mean this I honestly wonder if I've seen too many movies, if I've been too conditioned by Hollywood's formulaic heroism to think any other way. Second, while I am a Niburian in my head, I have to admit to being haunted by Stanley Hauerwas in my heart. Maybe it was that doggone Christmas tree falling over. Or maybe it's simply the notion that I might be betraying my savior were I to go down such a road. In any case, I feel like extreme caution in regard to violence is probably the least that a Christian can do. Although, and I can play this back and forth game in my head for far too long, I am also haunted by another voice, a secular voice that I have, for which I have great respect, the voice of Winston Churchill, who realized the dangers and terrible costs involved in placating someone like Hitler. I don't have an easy solution to this tension. But in conclusion, I do want to offer you something that I personally find helpful in seeking to navigate the shoals of this dilemma. And I want to commend to you the first passage, the one from the book of Joshua that we read earlier today. Joshua is a warrior. In today's text, Joshua, while scouting out a city that he intends to capture violently, runs into another soldier wielding a sword. Joshua eyes the figure and asks, are you one of us 
or one of our adversaries. The figure turns out to be an angel. In the words of the good book, this, this heavenly person is no less than God's field marshal, the commander of the armies of the Lord. And this makes the sword wielder's response to Joshua's question, whose side are you on, rather stunning. Neither. I'm not on your side. I'm not on your enemy's side. I'm on God's side. And the place that you are standing, the place where you will battle, is holy ground. The implication here is clear. When it comes to human conflict, God is not about choosing sides. God is going to pursue God's agenda regardless of the battle lines that we humans have drawn. What is God's agenda? How can we honor the holy ground we stand on? How can we get ourselves on God's side? Well, those are the Russian dolls that we will seek to open next week. Go from this place, my friends, in a spirit of truth and peace, trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power and solidarity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, FAPC.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Thank you and God bless.